Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. All right, so we're here, season four. Welcome to season four. Content warning for this episode. It does contain child abuse and death, discussion of eating disorders, and fat phobia. Like, a lot. I'm not kidding about this one. If you cannot handle any discussion of eating disorders and fat phobia, I get it. This episode is not for you. Please be safe. Take care yep. of yourselves. We, we don't harbor any bad feelings if you need to skip it. Mm-mm. We'd rather you know ahead of time than not know and be caught off guard. Yeah. So. Yeah, that would suck. Where are we going today, Kayla? We're talking about a poison that has been used as a medicine. It was in my parents' medicine cabinet growing up. And as I was doing research for this, I realized that this might be, like, kind of at the root of my interest in, like, poisons and poisons okay. as medicine and, yeah, shit like that. So, um... We are talking about a purgative, we're talking about epicac, and purgatives have long been used in medicine since ancient times because people figured that if disease is caused by something getting into us in some way and it shouldn't be there, then we should be doing everything we can to get it out of us. Get it the fuck out. Yeah. The use of purgatives even predates bloodletting, which is still, it's based on the same idea. You have too much blood, it's making you sick, you need to get the extra blood out. But purgatives have been used for a long, long time, and probably because they were easy to identify, easy to use. And um, easy to see that it's working. Totally. Like, cause yeah. and effect. Exactly. Like, you put something in, you're getting something out. It, it yields results. Yeah. Got yeah. It. And there are some of my favorite and least favorite poisons to talk about because I hate the action of purgatives, and especially em- em- emetics, to a degree that is absolutely pathological. You know this. Everybody <laughs> I do. around me knows this. But their use is so paradoxical that it's one of the easiest poisons as medicines to discuss, as we were just saying. I mean, purgatives weren't just used for diseases, but they were used as antidotes early in human history. As long as we've had and used poisons for malice, we've sought an antidote to them. And purgatives mm-hmm. are an easy way to say, you've been poisoned. Let's double poison you and get it out. Yeah, and I wonder if they looked at it as a poison mm-hmm. and, because it was yielding the result they wanted, mm-hmm. you know? So is it even looked at that way or is it just like, this is what we need to have happen? Right, and I think that is an interesting point in toxicology because everything's a poison, the dose makes the poison, but with things like purgatives, it's really like writing that line of, mm-hmm. is it a poison or is it a medicine? And right. I'm inclined to say if something makes you vomit or uncontrollably shit yourself like let's just say it's a poison we're like using it such that it's not fatal most of the time usually but it's like it's a poison that's clearly like a poison effect i would tend to agree with you yeah and purgatives are interesting because it's an idea that we've held on to for a really long time compared to other medicines that have evolved from earlier techniques like bloodletting anesthesia treatment of mental illness those all started 
in these like forms of medicine that we would nowadays consider barbaric, you know, we're high up on our seats of like being able to look back into history and say, well, that was clearly wrong. Mm -hmm. But with purgatives, we held on to it for such a long time. I mean, like I said, Epicac was in my parents' medicine cabinet growing up. It was in mine too, or my grandma's house too. Yeah, yeah. And you know, Dioscorides, in the first century CE, he recommends iris oil and water in his Materia Medica and identified it as a poison and then said, a drink of a wine cupful purges the bowels, is good for suffering of the stomach, encourages urine, and is good for those who have difficulty vomiting, their fingers being rubbed in it to put down their throat, or given with other things that cause vomiting. It is given as an antidote to those who have taken a drink of hemlock, fungi, or coriander. So, like, Dioscorides, first century CE to the late 1990s. Like, purgatives were hold held onto for such a long time. And is this the iris flower that he's talking about? Yeah, oil made from the iris flower. Yeah. Oh, so is it poisonous? Like poisonous poisonous yeah. or yes. just okay yeah i didn't I, know yeah and i mean like i said he identifies it as a poison he identifies yeah. it as like too much of this will kill you which is essentially how he classified things as poisonous but gotcha. yeah definitely a poison i don't think that there's any uh, medicinal use of iris oil now but i also didn't look into it too deeply for this episode but several other you know Early physicians, several Greek physicians, recommended regular purging to maintain oh. health as, like, just something that you normally do. Like, you know, healthy diet, exercise, purging. And this is yeah. why <laughs> I was, like, big eating disorder warning at the beginning of this yeah, episode. Yeah, that they think that this isn't just what you do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's mm. not normalize that because yeah, no. that's not good. Um, and they, they recommended it both as a dietary measure, do it every day, and as a medical you know, medicinal intervention. Some cited this was the practice of the Egyptians for wellness, which was true, but it didn't mean that it was a good idea. Like, just because the Egyptians did it doesn't mean that, Doesn't like, mean it's... Yeah. ...the way to go. All right. Um, but purging also came to be adopted as a cure for epilepsy, syphilis, cancer. Nearly anything that was tough to cure was treated with a violent purgative. And this didn't actually work, though, right? No. no. Yeah, of course not. Like the, the, But let's just have everybody violently vomiting everywhere and call yeah. it a day. It's got to get something up. You know, by the time you're at the end of everything and you're like, I have to be puking up organs, I kind of feel like that's what they were going for. You'll just puke that tumor right up. <laughs> but in the 18th century, perpetual pills were made from antimony, and they were used to cleanse the body because... Nothing ever really changes, and we've always been obsessed with cleansing our bodies in some ways that make no sense. Like, we've gone from antimony to weird, like, diet teas that you shouldn't drink too much because right. you'll just shit yourself to death. The pills were made from antimony and would cause someone to violently vomit and defecate. But when that was all over, you could retrieve the pill from <sighs> your, you know, ship bucket because it's the Victorian era. You could wash it off, and you could put it back on the shelf for you or anyone else in your family to use again. No. <laughs> yeah. They That's were something that was considered, like, passed down. You could inherit oh, it. Oh, my lovely generation's old purgative pills. Yeah. Yes. So it's, it, it's a family. Yeah, it's a family heirloom. Yes. Per like, uh, 
And yeah. what is and what is antimony? Antimony is an, another semi-metal that's pretty similar to arsenic in a lot of okay. ways chemically. So um, it's not found quite as abundantly in the Earth's crust, but it's it's similar to arsenic in a lot of ways. And that's what causes the vomiting. Yes, because you're just Ugh. poisoning yourself. Just they're poisoning themselves. <laughs> All right. Um, along the same line of thought, as far as the cleansing, though, people maintained an interest in cleansing themselves by forcing the shit out of their bodies. Literally. Considering the number of, like I said, laxative teas on the market today that are sold as cleanses or abused by individuals who still believe that laxatives and purgatives are a good way to lose weight. Spoiler alert, it's not. Don't do it. Don't uh, it should come as no surprise that in the 1930s, people still believed that they could be poisoning themselves by the, quote, uneliminated filth forming a sticky coating on the walls and in the folds of the intestines, which it was explained slowly decomposed in your body, releasing poisons of putrefaction into the bloodstream. So they thought if you had too much shit just sitting in your body, usually because you ate too much meat and your body's having a slow time digesting it, that you were poisoning yourself this way. Mm. So this, just get it all out. Yeah, so you, the yeah, just get it all out was the solution because this was known as auto-intoxication. And constipation was considered a, like a side effect of living in, quote, civilization. So like um, Western civilizations mm. that had sedentary lifestyles were eating a lot of meat because they pointed out that Non-Western cultures didn't use laxatives at nearly the weight rate mm. that Westerners did. Um, but who knows if it was a chicken and the egg situation, you know, where like we're like, oh, we just need to purge ourselves because we need to cleanse. We're so clean that we're going to use laxatives. And like right. after a while of abusing laxatives, your body does respond to that. It kind of gets used to the effects of laxatives. Right. And it's going to build up a tolerance just like with anything. Yeah. And then what used to make you shit your brains out probably not going to eventually yeah but you also now have all these like issues where your body's just constantly your stomach and your guts are upset and like inflamed all the time it's a mm. bad situation it's bad but western doctors had always been able to easily prescribe laxatives for whatever and westers ate a lot of meat they experienced bloating and discomfort and so that was easy for doctors to say here take a laxative that'll quickly clear you right up there were, in fact, so many laxatives being prescribed in the early 20th century that in the 1950s, doctors started to raise alarms about the possibility of abuse, which could be fatal. Laxatives and purgatives can cause serum potassium levels to drop dangerously low, which impacts the kidneys, heart, and nervous system and can lead to paralysis. Big time problems. Mm. Purgatives were also showing potential for abuse, especially among people with purging-type eating disorders, which could lead to diseases of the joints and heart disease. And yet, for gastric decontamination, so in the event that you accidentally ingest something poisonous, some sort of toxin, whatever, purgatives, rather than laxatives, and only in emergency settings, found a renewed place in medicine in the 1970s. Activated charcoal was sometimes used for this purpose, and you'll st still see that cited and debated today. But the only emetic that maintained its use from ages past was Epicac syrup. Mm. So, so this is its, like, coming-of-age story. Yeah, well, this is almost its, like, I guess you could say coming-of-age. It's almost its, like, turnaround, like, yeah, I'm coming back type of thing. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. So Epicac syrup is derived from the Brazilian Epicuana root, which was first brought to Europe in 1649. 
In Brazil, it was known as Ig Pecaia, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering Brazilian. I clearly don't speak it, and I think this is actually Brazilian, not Portuguese, because this was a native plant. Mm. So, um, but this Ig Pecaia loosely translates as the roadside vomiting plant. <laughs> it Very was known, straight and to the point. Yeah, it was intense stuff, and they knew it. But this plant, it, they found it, they took it back, you know, found it. They were shown how it works, mm-hmm. and they took it back to Europe. And it proved useful in the treatment of Louis XIV's son for dysentery. And so then everybody was like, oh, my God, this was amazing. It treated the dysentery, and it became solidified in Western pharmacies. And so we started importing it from Brazil. Okay. By the 18th century, it was widely available in European pharmacies, and in 1817, the active compound was first extracted and dubbed emetine because emesis is the primary function. Roadside vomiting plant makes sense. Right. And it's catchy. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. Catchy in a way that just makes me cringe. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As an emetophobe, Yes. <laughs> In the 1960s, doctors and especially pediatricians began recommending that people keep a bottle of Epicac on hand at home, just in case, of accidental ingestions. Epicac could act within 20 to 30 minutes of ingestion and would cause a person to vomit, and that seemed to be an easier solution than wasting time getting to the hospital, trying to determine what was ingested, and then finding the right antidote specifically for whatever was ingested. And that may not have even been needed if there was no actual ingestion, you know? And so you're just like, I think you ate something. We should probably get that up. And with small children, it's sometimes hard to get any of that information if the parent didn't see what it was. If you just saw, say, kid pick up a pill and pop it in its mouth at grandma's house, which happens all the time even now, you know? Right. The usual dosage recommended in these situations for children over six months was 5 to 10 milliliters, not a whole lot. And for children over 12 and adults, it was 15 to 30 milliliters, so about the same, like, dosage that you would use for, like, cough syrup now. Okay. And I actually want you to read this excerpt from Wasted by Maria Hornbacher that describes um, when she's deep in her eating disorder, she decides Mm. to down a bottle of Epicac and... Oh, shit. Her experience with that. So not tablespoons are worth the whole Whole thing. Yep. I bought laxatives and began eating a box of them every day. I was shitting water and blood. This is an eating disorder, and this is how crazy it makes you. We are running through the streets of the city in the middle of the night. We are buying Epicac. We are missing the presidential inauguration that we are supposed to be covering. We drag ourselves up the stairs of the dorm and sit down on the floor. And then we stand up and drink the whole bottle of Epicac, smug in our mastery of ourselves, and we think of how we will write an article when we've thrown up and the floor comes flying up at our heads. I lay there, praying with all my might, curled fetally into myself, stomach tearing, praying that I might be allowed to either throw up or die. Dear God, please let me throw up or die. Throw up or die. And then I threw up horribly and blacked out again. Yeah. That is... (laughs) Not a good time. Did no. did she survive? Like, she, yeah, she did. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess she wrote this, so yeah. But I mean, she she should have probably been hospitalized, but she wasn't at this point. Okay. Epicac it doesn't just cause vomiting, which to somebody like me, like that's enough for me to be like ah, hard pass. But it causes 
violent vomiting, and I cannot stress that enough. It's so violent that you could tear your lower esophagus, you could cause a gastric rupture, you could actually force air into the space between your lungs, and then you can develop aspiration pneumonia. Mm. You could also end up with diarrhea and a fever that, you know, continue to contribute to the electrolyte loss on top of the vomiting, and that's where the um, potassium serum levels just drop drastically. And so you can also pass out. You can end up with that paralysis that we talked about earlier. Like, most that's of... when we're getting into dangerous territory. Right, right. And most of the time, like, clearly, if you've just taken enough for this accidental ingestion, you probably won't get this far. But, like, even the prescribed amount causes really, really forceful vomiting, you know? Yeah, no, that's not a good time. So Epicac is still considered safe in toxicological profile because... Few people have died from it, but it is possible to die just from Epicac and not even from these, like, violent physiological side effects. You can actually end up with cardiotoxicity because of the emetine. Um, but I, I put this note here that the tox safety to me is questionable when you can end up with these side effects because the whole aim of Epicac is to induce a to toxic response. So, right. Like, when is you it quote-unquote safe? Right. So when you hear that something is to toxicologically safe, like, sure, that means that we've done testing. But I encourage people to, like, question what that means and do digging, especially if it's a medicine or something like mm -hmm. that. But the cardiotoxicity. When Karen Carpenter of the Carpenters died from heart failure at the age of 32 in 1983, the Los Angeles coroner declared her death was from complications of anorexia nervosa, specifically cardiotoxicity from emetine, which was present because Carpenter had been abusing Epicac. Oh, so she, that was like her go-to way yeah. to hurt. Like, or if she ate because she had anorexia. Yeah. I had no idea that that was a part of it. I knew she yeah. died because of, like, the heart attack and disordered eating. But I right. had no idea that Epicac was involved. Right, yeah. That, and, and when you're not eating, adding mm -hmm. a poison to the mix is probably not going to lead to positive results. Yeah, it's it's bad. I mean, I knew that she, like, died because of complications of anorexia. But I thought it was just... Because when you get to such a low weight sometimes, standing up, you know, could give you a heart right. attack or a stroke. But right. no, it's from the cardiotoxicity of, of this drug, Damn. this poison. And like I've said a couple times already, my parents had a bottle of this in our house growing up. And so, you know, they were at least aware of Epicac as a remedy. And I don't know. They, they did mention it on occasion if, like... And I don't even know, like, you know, kids put things in their mouth all the time. Mm -hmm. So it was probably one of those, like, don't put anything in your mouth because I'll have to give you Ipecac. And so, like, the threat of this for using it as an <laughs> accidental ingestion may have been enough to establish my neuroses. Like, I'm kind of having breakthroughs as I'm doing this research. <laughs> right. And I think that I developed an interest in keeping myself from ever being poisoned because y'all mom and dad might pull out the epic right. like you, you god know? forbid they <laughs> have to get this and make me throw up right and then i became interested in poisons themselves after that so maybe it was all because of the epic who knows <laughs> i like this origin story for you <laughs> but it was not until the late 90s that the positions on epic as an emergency decontaminant began to change 
the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology, and the European Association of Poison Centers and Clinical Toxicologists, mouthful of a name, appear to have been the first groups to begin questioning the age-old remedies for accidental intoxication by invoking the idea of evidence-based practices, which apparently was not the trend at the time. Like, late 90s when was when they were like, maybe we should have evidence to back up <laughs> our medical decisions. Weird. Maybe. Just maybe. And just because apprentices and residences had been brought up using things like Ipecac didn't mean that we should just continue using it because that was how we've always done things. Well, this is where I, as the layperson, am kind of confused on using Epicac as an an like a catch-all antidote to poisons because by the time you're seeing that somebody's been poisoned, like let's say a child, they mm -hmm. don't know that what they ingested, like it's not an intentional, you know, mm -hmm. ingestion of something. Like it's already in your bloodstream, I would think. Like it's already taken effect, so you can't always throw it up. Mm -hmm. You know, like so to me, it doesn't seem like it makes sense as a catch-all, like for just all the th all the things, we'll just use Epicac. Yeah, yeah. And I, I get that. Like, depending on the amount of time that's passed, maybe you didn't see them put anything in their mouth, but you found the open bottle of something. Right. I think they're thinking that if it's a pill, it's going to take time to get to the stomach and then mm -hmm. release, and so you can use it. Or if it's a plant or anything like that, that it really has to reach the stomach. But you're right. Even then, it could have already started to disperse. They might have chewed it before. Right. And so now there's, you know, it's dissolving and getting into the bloodstream uh yeah it's not a great catch-all it <laughs> do they get into how effective it is mm -hmm. yeah because once they were like let's do evidence-based stuff they went and they got their evidence and oh good good for them uh, so these toxicology groups found that the beneficial effects of Epicac were actually relatively small. Mm. In human trials, they found that as much as 50% of a poison could remain in the system after ingestion of Epicac, and that the time it took for the Epicac to be administered and take effect allowed for the poison to travel further into the body, like the small intestine, the blood, everything you were saying. Yeah, this is exactly what I thought. Like, it, the, it's... It's not enough. Yeah. Or it's, yeah, it's, it's not going to do enough of it. Right, right. Now, despite the repositioning of these groups regarding Ipecac use, as of March 2020, the FDA's position is that, and if you'd like to read this, it's a bit long, but this really is me um, condensing their position. It is estimated that each year about 500,000 accidental poisonings occur in the United States and result in approximately 1,500 deaths, of which over 400 are children. In the emergency treatment of these poisonings, Ipecac syrup is considered the emetic of choice. In connection with its study of this problem, the Food and Drug Administration has obtained the views of medical authorities. It is the unanimous recommendation of the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Association of Poison Control Centers, the American Medical Association, and the Medical Advisory Board of the Food and Drug Administration that Epicac syrup in one fluid ounce containers be permitted to be sold without prescription so that it will be readily available in the household for emergency treatment of poisonings under medical supervision and that the drug be appropriately packaged and labeled for this purpose. In the view of the above recommendations, in addition to the other required label information, the following in a prominent and conspicuous manner. A statement conspicuously boxed in red letters to the effect, 
for emergency use to cause vomiting and poisoning. Before using, call physician, the poison control center, or hospital emergency room immediately for advice. Two, a warning to the effect, warning, keep out of reach of children, do not use an unconscious persons. Ordinarily, this drug should not be used if strychnine, corrosive such as alkalis, lye, and strong acids or petroleum distillates such as kerosene, gasoline, coal oil, fuel oil, paint thinner, or cleaning fluid have been ingested. Thank you. But not all of this is actually true, despite this being their current statement, because we're... Uh, they last updated it in March. This is releasing in September, but we're recording in June. So, in 2003, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued a statement that, quote, there was controversy within the American Academy of Pediatrics about this recommendation because the concern that the efficacy of Ipecac had never been proved. The AAP provides the following recommendations. Poison prevention should continue as an integral part of anticipatory guidance activities for physicians taking care of infants and children. Syrup of Ipecac should not be used routinely as a poison treatment intervention in the home. Physicians who care for children should remind parents to dispose of any Ipecac currently <laughs> in the home. And the first action for a caregiver of a child who may have ingested a toxic substance should be to consult with the local poison control center. And the position of the poison control centers is Ipecac, don't use it. Well, these are all over the place then. Yeah, yeah. So I can see it being a little bit confusing. The FDA did have a hearing in 2003 to determine whether Ipecac should no longer be available over the counter, but they still haven't made a decision 19 years later. So is it still readily available today? It is. I checked and I can actually still put Ipecac tablets, not the liquid, but tablets in my next King Supers order. Shit. Yeah. So this is all 2003, 2022, and it is all over the place. I think the general consensus is to not use it and to just not even induce vomiting anymore. We did over the summer an episode on the Sixth Sense as a microdose with our patrons, and in the sixth sense, there's a poisoning with something that appears to look like pine salt. So we covered pine salt. Mm -hmm. And for accidental ingestions of pine salt, the recommendation is to not induce vomiting. They don't really recommend that you induce vomiting at all anymore for anything because it's not going to get it up. It could be it's dangerous right. to the person. It's going to cause more harm than good at that point. Right. And especially with those last couple of things that you named, anything that's an acid, a petroleum distillate, lye, like that probably hurt going down and it's going to hurt coming back up. Right. Or just even if it's just throwing up water like or bile at that point, yeah. the damage is already done. And, yeah. the, and you're just causing a lot of like anybody who's ever violently been vomited, like it causes a lot of stress on the body and yeah. wears you out. Like so it's it takes a lot out of you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if we go back to the early 90s, late 80s, it wasn't suspicious for Christina Rubio and Pedro Rubio Sr. to have it in their house in 1989. In fact, it may have been seen as suspicious for them to have not had it just in case their 13-month-old Pedro P.J. Rubio had an accidental ingestion. And by what I can tell, it seemed that Christina was a very attentive mother to P.J. Of course, she would have Ipecac 
to take care of her kid. That's what's recommended by Mm -hmm. pediatricians. And her kid was a sick child from birth, unfortunately. He was in and out of hospitals. He was constantly being examined by doctors who could not figure out what was wrong with him. And all they knew was that he suffered from some sort of illness that affected his heart and skeletal muscles. His last admission to the hospital was on May 9th, 1990s, just days after his first birthday. He was there for the entire month of May as doctors scrambled to solve the mystery of his health. And then on May 29th, PJ went into surgery at the All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg, Florida, and died. Hmm. A year later, Christina gave birth to her second child, Lauren, who appeared to have the same mystery illness as her late brother. Lauren was admitted to the Arnold Palmer Hospital for Children and Women in November of 1991 when she was just four months old. I think I smells another Munchausen's case. <laughs> I think anytime I bring up children anymore, people are going to be suspicious that right, that's why. That it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So Christina stayed by her ailing daughter's side 24 hours a day as doctors tried to figure out what was wrong with the infant, although this time they thought they might know what the culprit finally was. Mm. Baby Lauren's stomach was pumped and doctors found Ipecac syrup. Authorities were notified and searched Lauren's hospital room. Three, three bottles of Ipecac (laughs) syrup were found in Christina's purse, along with a used syringe and a children's medicine dropper. After this discovery, police say Christina admitted to her husband, Pedro, that she gave Lauren the epicac to get the doctors to look at Lauren and take her illness seriously because no one believed she was sick. But still, still, that's a lot of fucking epicac. Like, yeah. Like when it doesn't take but like a tablespoon or a teaspoon. Yeah for a dosage and you have three bottles well and you don't need one bottle lauren is under six months so it's not even recommended for children that young oh good point it wasn't back in 1991 right 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 good point yeah people figured out what happened they know what happened with lauren they think they know what happened with pj a trial for attempted second degree murder for lauren because she did survive she did Uh, that took place in january of 1994 Christina's psychologist testified that Christina began giving Lauren the epicac at only three months old. Oh, my God. Because PJ had died and Christina was so afraid that Lauren had the same illness. It was also said during the trial that Christina suffered from Munchausen's by proxy. There it is. Uh, So she had an illness that compelled her to do this rather than doing it for some more criminal reason. That was clearly her defense. Like, she wasn't trying to kill her kid. Like, not really, but, you know. Right. A plea deal was reached in this trial, and Christina was sentenced to 15 years probation and psychiatric counseling. But this is not the way to get answers for unexplained illness. If anything, I would think that it muddies the water because you're throwing in something else to be taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're making new symptoms or worsening existing symptoms, and it's right. not going to help anybody get the answers needed. Right. And I think that the jury probably saw that and was like, if you truly cared about your child, you wouldn't be putting them through more pain. Right. Just for the sake of, quote unquote, getting answers. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm. Now, of course, these findings, the findings from Lauren's trial, made people suspicious about the circumstances surrounding PJ's death, and the police already were, and doctors must have already been, because otherwise they wouldn't probably have known what to do for Lauren. Sure. Luckily, the All Children's Hospital had taken and preserved PJ's organs, which were examined and also found to contain traces of Ipecac syrup. I'm really glad that they took a look back at that case because it definitely was suspicious. Mm-hmm. Like, especially after they had the same illness. I mean, and maybe they were sick. Yeah. Maybe they were sick children without this at all. I don't know. But I'm really glad that they took a look back at it. Yeah. And so how did that how did that trial go? Christina Rubio's lawyer pled insanity for PJ's first-degree murder trial in March of 1994. So they got right on top of this murder trial um, after Lawrence. The lawyer also claimed that the Ipecac could have gotten into PJ's system by Christina's mother, Clara Gonsalves, who the lawyer claimed also stu- suffered from Munchausen's by proxy mm. based on the fact that she took Christina to the doctor repeatedly as a child. Hell, since hospital staff had access to the boy, they could have given him Epicac, or he could have just died in surgery. These were all things that the lawyer actually said, and clearly he was just trying to cast doubt, you know, make it so that it can't be Christina, it could be literally anybody else. It could be, yeah, I mean, because that's his job, is to find some reasonable doubt for the jury, Mm -hmm. but still, though, like... It didn't work. We're we're reaching. We're reaching here. The information from the first case was actually allowed to be presented in the second case. And so any of his reaching, yeah, yeah. But any of his reaching, the jury was like, absolutely not. (laughs) She tried to kill her second child. (laughs) And then, based on witness testimony, the prosecution argued to the court that, quote, the child was tortured and tortured and tortured for months on end, often several times a day. Based on this... They determined that Rubio deserved the maximum sentence of 17 years. That's it? For, yeah, yeah. So, in November of 1994, 29-year-old Christina Rubio was charged with first-degree murder and sentenced to 13 years in prison, one for every torturous month of Pedro Rubio Jr.'s life, after which she would serve her 20 years probation. She could also no longer have contact with children, including two-year-old Lauren, who survived her her ordeal with Christina and was living with her father, Pedro. And Pedro divorced Christina after he learned about the abuse, and the father-daughter pair lived together in Orlando. Well, that's some sense of, that's some relief. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, this is an older case. PJ died the year before I was born, and so Rubio should now be serving the last five years of her probation somewhere. I couldn't find any further information on it or what she's up to now, but hopefully she's still prevented with contact for children, including any of her own or anyone she could be put in the care of, you know, and I hope that she's honestly getting the therapy she needs. Unfortunately, as I said before, Ithacac is still for sale over the counter despite its inefficacy as an emergency treatment for accidental ingestion or otherwise, and it still poses a potential hazard in the hands of the wrong person. It's, yeah, it sounds like it packs a deadly punch. Yeah, it does. And so are there any ways, safe ways to induce vomiting? Mm -mm, No, there's no safe way to induce it. They've 
looked at Epicac, they've looked at salt water, they've looked at acetaminophen. Apparently, those were all pretty standard ways of inducing vomiting before, but any more like if you need to purge the contents of your stomach, they will pump your stomach. Oh, okay. Instead of making you go through it. That's, yeah. I mean, that's some sort of a relief. It yeah. also sounds very traumatic, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And do we know if deaths from Epicac tend to be more intentional or accidental? So I found this quote from a 2013 paper, and it said, Though the majority of poisonings in children are unintentional, the significant number of fatalities may represent clear cases of abuse or neglect. Indeed, recent studies show an average of 160 malicious poisonings per year to poison control centers. This is based on a 2010 paper that was cited in the 2013 paper that I'm quoting. So the data here is over 10 years old. But I'm bringing it up because it seems like across the board, all poisonings are unintentional. So mm. I would think that, especially death that results from poisoning, is probably unintentional. It's probably accidental. But I think it would be an interesting topic to cover as maybe a microdose at some point and tease out the implication of the different types of childhood exposure to different things. There's not really time for it here, but I just think it would be interesting to actually say, like, there was this paper I found, it may have been this one, that broke down, like, is it neglect? Is it intentional? Or is it just an accident? You know? Mm. And I thought that was really interesting because I actually know of somebody here in the Springs that, like, her kid accidentally ate um, a, a weed gummy, you know, mm. and he was he was really out of it and... She didn't know what it was, and so she took him to the doctor. She did the right thing, and then I think her kids got taken away from her. Oh, shit. Because they were like, you, maybe it was neglect or something. You left drugs out for your kids, right. and they got it. And it's like, was it was it neglect? Like, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, so, it's so hard to say. Yeah, because, you know, she, it's, she seemed like she did all the right things. It seemed like it was just an accident. So that, I think, would be an interesting topic to cover. But short answer for your question, most deaths from Epicac are unintentional. And okay. most of the people who are poisoning her, their children, and that's how we're getting these poisoning to their deaths, they're in the, you know, minority, by far the minority. Well, it sounds like maybe find a different way or just get to the hospital, call poison control. Call Is that poison what... control, yeah. Call poison control. Don't reach for the Epicac. It's not going to lead you to a good time. You'll mm -mm. be vomiting violently, and nobody wants that. Yeah, maybe just, you know, try to be safe with poisons and get baby locks and all that. There are ways to prevent it. Yeah. And don't leave medicine lying around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keep your cleaning stuff away from the babies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's safe ways to do it to where you don't have to rely on having something so toxic in your house as something so toxic to um, be the answer for yeah. another toxic yeah. in ingestion. <laughs> yeah. And just don't make yourself throw up. Like it's not necessary to make yourself throw up. Yep. Call poison control, get to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for, for trucking through this one and working through your childhood um, <laughs> discoveries. Yeah. I, I really learned some stuff about myself, if nothing else here. <laughs>
Yep, and and I know that vomiting is not your favorite subject, but thank you for for trucking through. We appreciate you, Kayla, <laughs> I did and all this of your for research. All of you. <laughs> we love you for it. <laughs> well, I love you. Thanks. Thank you all for a fourth season. I'm really excited to get started on this one. We actually have a really like cool lineup, so I hope everybody's super psyched. Yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> Check us out on Patreon mm-hmm. if you need more content. Um, we had fun with movie sum- or summer movie nights. Mm-hmm. So lots more to come. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison.